Let me just move here. Good morning, church. If you could please open your Bible to James. I'm going to wait and give you a few moments to get there. We're going to James 5, verse 13 to 18. Right towards the end of your Bible. Like, there. All right. The prayer of faith. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. One, two, yeah, great. Shannon, thank you very much for praying for us. Uh, sorry, for reading for us. It's been such a prayer, saturated morning, isn't it? And I just loved how we ended off our time of worship and just bursting into these wonderful prayers of expressing um, God and uh, His incredible nature to, to us. Um, I must tell you this, um, I was sitting next to Shireen, and uh, when Mark um, came up to do announcements, Shireen says to me, doesn't he look heavenly? <laughs> and uh, in, uh, in my light bulb moment, I said to her, it must be the slops that he's wearing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, yeah, good morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real honor and pleasure to speak to you this morning. Uh, we carry on in our journey um, in the book of James, and uh, we're almost right at the end of James. And uh, the title of my message this morning is Enduring Faith is Powerful Through Prayer. Uh, before we start, why don't we just pray to God together. Father, we thank you, and as we sang this morning, our hearts are open. Won't you come, God, as Jason prayed, in your love and kindness, and do a work in our hearts by your Spirit. As we hear your word this morning, God, we invite you, come in your love and mercy and lead us in truth to see you, to behold you, God, to find encouragement, to find healing, to find strength and the light of who you are. We thank you. Amen. So James, in the first verse of our main text this morning, says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So James takes these two polar or opposing realities of life, suffering, and joy. And like a panoramic picture, he stretches our view from one extreme to another. And in a sense, he captures all of life. I don't know where you are this morning. Perhaps for you this morning, life feels like an unending journey of suffering. Maybe for some, it feels like half and half, suffering and joy in the same cup. Maybe you might be saying, I'm actually in a good place at the moment. Business is booming. I've never been happy at work as I am. The kids are sleeping well. I've never felt fitter and healthier than I feel right now. I'm just in a good place. I am content with life at the moment. And I think James is addressing all of us, no matter where you are this morning. And I think the big part of what James is saying here is no matter where you are, do not do life without God. You and I need God every day, in every circumstance, in and through prayer, more than we need anything else. In fact, prayer is at the heart of what it means to do life with God. It is in prayer that we get to experience a real and a living relationship with God. Samuel Chadwick says this, that prayer is the privilege of sons. Prayer is the test or proof of sonship. Ladies, you're included here. No wonder, no small wonder, when God sends Ananias to Saul in Acts 9 verse 11, the same Saul who had been known for persecuting the church, the very first thing that God says to Ananias to assure him of the authenticity of Saul's conversion to Christianity was this. Behold, he is praying. Other translations say, behold, he prays. Well, behold is not the word that we normally use these days, isn't it? We do not say when load shedding ends, behold, electricity is back. <laughs> we, we might capture the same meaning, but we might say, hey, electricity is back. Listen up, pay attention. This is important. Switch on the lights. Switch on the oven. Hopefully not at 10 p.m. I can see those with solar inverters uh, they have a different demeanor as, as I say this. But see what grabs God's attention. He prays. Well, God doesn't say to Ananias, Behold, Saul is now going to church for real these days. You know, behold, 
Saul's behavior has improved so much. He won't even kick the dog. No, behold, he prays. Well, James, I think, was mindful that his readers then, like us today, we can easily find ourselves in a place where prayer is nice, but not a necessity. We can sleep into living our lives as if the security of money or the escape of holiday or a few beers or a glass of wine or whatever that you run to as a fix can do what prayer does. No wonder we find ourselves where our hearts are constantly restless, where we feel worn out and spent and tired and even disillusioned with life or even our walk with God. Well, James in verse 13 reminds us that the proper or the right response to suffering is prayer. You might be saying this to me, I hear you, but right now I'm just in a difficult spot. I feel bitterly disappointed. I feel angry right now with what's happening to me. Perhaps as what Job says when he says this to God in Job 30, verse 20 to 21. I cried to you for help, but you do not answer. I stand. You only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. Maybe for some of us this morning, we have developed a quiet cynicism or a subtle disbelief when it comes to prayer. Maybe even a spiritual weariness as our heartfelt prayers seemingly go unanswered. I think of myself a couple of years ago, for a long time, I just stopped praying for Zimbabwe, where I come from. Maybe for you this morning, you've stopped praying for South Africa, just overwhelmed with what's happening in what seems like a situation that just keeps on getting worse and it doesn't get better. Maybe for some of you this morning, it's much closer to home. You have given up on praying for your marriage. Maybe you've given up praying for that tough and broken relationship that you have with your parents or with your kids. You've given up praying for healing, to trust God to move miraculously and in power. So in as much as sometimes we feel like what Job felt when he expressed himself in Job 30 verse 20 to 21, that God does not respond to our cries for help, that seemingly he only stands and just cruelly 
looks on as we suffer. Beloved of God, the Bible reminds us that God responds to our prayers. That God responds with love, in power, and with wisdom. In fact, later on in Job 42, verse 5 to 6, Job realizes this. And this is what he says. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And he says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and in ashes. So God responds to our prayers in suffering in two ways. He either, like what Job experienced, he stops the suffering. The Bible tells us in Job 42 that God healed Job, but he, he did not only heal him, he gave him more children and he gave him more wealth. And we see in Mark 4, verse 38 to 39, Jesus' disciples, they cry out to him in a storm and they say, Teacher, do you not care if we drown? And the Bible says, Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the storm, Quiet, be still. And immediately the wind died down. And the Bible says, and there was complete calm. Well, on the other hand, God does not stop our suffering. He does not stop the storm. But he allows and he enables his beloved to walk through it, looking to him. And Paul records his experience of this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 9. And he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with God to take it away from me. And God said this to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, I want us to linger here for a little, for a little while. I want to share a remarkable story of a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you may know her. She's a non-missionary author, and, and a speaker, one of the most influential women of the 20th century, and uh, she is one of my heroes in the faith. And uh, Elizabeth, as, as I say, as I tell this story, my goal is not to canonize her, but to provoke and encourage you to bring your sufferings to God in prayer, just as I was provoked and encouraged to bring my own suffering to God. So Elizabeth was born in America in 1926. Fast forward as a young lady, she embarks on a missionary journey to the jungles of Ecuador to reach out to a tribe 
known as the Colorados. And her journey was to go and learn their language and so that she could write their language and the Bible would be translated for them. At this point, there was no single word of the Bible written in their language. Neither was their own language written. So Elizabeth spends nine months in the jungles of Ecuador, painstakingly learning and writing by hand with no computer. In this time, Elizabeth would experience grief and huge setback when a translator was killed in the jungle. She perseveres with this seemingly impossible task, and finally she finishes. And when she finished writing, she sends a huge bunch of notes in a suitcase with another missionary, only for that suitcase to be stolen. And this is what she says of uh, her experience. She says this. All the questions as to the validity of my calling or much more fundamental, God's interest in the Colorado salvation in any missionary work, Bible translation, or any other kind, all these questions came to the fore. I was dumbfounded to realize that all that hard work was down the drain. I was furious at whoever stole that suitcase and undoubtedly discarded that priceless paper. This grief, this sorrow, this total loss that empties my hands and breaks my heart, I may, if I will, accept. And in accepting it, I find in my hands something to offer And so I give it back to him, God, who in a mysterious exchange gives himself to me. Beloved of God, this beautiful exchange only happens on our knees in prayer. Later on, after five years of waiting, Well, Jolene and I only waited for six months, and it felt like six years. After five years of waiting for to be married, Elizabeth and Jim Elliot got married. And within 27 months of marriage, Jim and four other missionaries are gruesomely murdered by the Orca tribe that they were trying to reach out to with the gospel. And at the age of 30, Elizabeth finds herself as a new widow and a single mom to a 10-month daughter. And this is what she says of her experience. When I stood by my shortwave radio in the jungle of Ecuador in 1956 and heard that my husband, Jim Elliot, was missing. God brought to my mind the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be 
with you. You can imagine that my response was not terribly spiritual. I was saying, but Lord, you are with me all the time. What I want is Jim. God's presence with me was not Jim's presence. And that was a terrible fact. God's presence did not change the terrible fact that I was a widow. And that I expected to be a widow until I died because I thought it was a miracle I got married the first time. I couldn't imagine that I would ever get married a second time, let alone a third God's presence didn't change the fact of my widowhood, but Jim's absence thrust me, forced me, hurried me to God, my hope and my refuge. I learned in that experience who God is in a way I could never have known otherwise. And so I can say that to you, that suffering, is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth that God is God. Well, I still want to go back to him and say, but Lord, what about my little Scotty dog, Macduff, who died of cancer at the age of six? In less than two years after this tragic event, Elizabeth and a little daughter would move in with this fierce orca tribe, longing to show them the love of God. And many of them believed in God. Later on, Elizabeth would move back to America and would get married for the second time. And within four years into a second marriage, her husband died of cancer. In old age, Elizabeth would suffer a cruel and a slow death due to dementia. Now, as we reflect on this remarkable story, I cried a couple of times as I reflected on this story myself. But as we reflect on this story, let not the focal point be Elizabeth's suffering. It is in the way that she suffered, that offers a compelling faith example for us this morning that should cause you and I to ask ourselves, what else? What else than to bring our suffering to God in prayer? Like Elizabeth and how she fixed her eyes on Jesus, even to the bitter end. And when Elizabeth was asked how she managed in all these experiences 
she said that the secret is Christ in me and not me in a different set of circumstances. I want to say to you this morning that she lived this secret on her knees in prayer. In fact, Elizabeth was known to pray every day this simple prayer. And she would say to God, I offer to you all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, and all that I suffer. Let it be yours today. Let it be yours forever. Maybe you're here this morning and you have for long carried this pain, this disappointment. I want to encourage you, like Elizabeth did, offer it up to God today. Let it be His today. Let it be His forever. Moving on. Um, so James in verse 13 tells us that um, the right response to prayer is not only the right response to suffering, to trials and disappointments and loss, but that even in the good times, even when things are going well, that we can bring praise and thanksgiving to God in prayer. And I think some of us need to be reminded of this even more. The reality, brothers and sisters, is that we can have all the money in the world, play golf or surf every day, all day, eat as much chocolate as we want, never gain weight or get sick, or we can move all our friends, our family, and our favorites to our own island with no corruption, no crime, where the sun shines for 360 days a year. But we always have a God-shaped and a God-sized vacuum in our hearts. And David knew this, that even in all his wealth and power, he says this in Psalm 16, I have no other good apart from you. It is when we bring our joys, our good times to God that we get to experience the wonder of God deepening our joy. So let us bring our joys to God. Let us sing and praise God and worship Him as we pray and thank Him for the good times. In fact, Paul echoes what James says in verse 13, and he says in Ephesians 6, verse 18, pray in the Spirit at all times, on every occasion. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17 to 18, do not stop praying. Give thanks to God in every circumstance. For this is God's will for all those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
Moving on. James 5 verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I don't think James here is suggesting that whenever the seasonal allergies flare up or the occasional man flu, man flu guys, I know it's real, the struggle is real, that we call on the elders and ask them to anoint us uh, with oil. I think there is serious sickness happening here, and we can almost pick it up from the language that James uses. He says, call for the elders, sort of suggesting that the sick person cannot be at a meeting where the elders are. And Alec Mutia, a Bible scholar, says that when James says they pray over, sort of suggests that the person who's being prayed for is bedridden. But see how James specifically mentions the elders and not some faith healer who's advertised on a street light pole or a spiritual guru on the internet. He does not even necessarily call for a person with a gift of healing in as much as that would be a good compliment. But he calls for the elders, plural. And how are the elders to pray for the sick? They are to anoint the sick with oil as they offer up prayers of intercession. I think, and I understand that some of you might be saying, oil, weird. Only in my salad, please. This sounds like a ritual. Why would James say that? Well, in the ancient world, oil was known to have some medicinal qualities. But I don't think that's what James is aiming at here. If we read particularly in the Old Testament, we see oil being used to anoint or set apart people for God's purposes. So I think what James is referring to here is that the elders would anoint the sick with oil as a symbolic way of setting apart somebody who is seriously ill for the special attention and care of the Lord. I understand that it's not in every occasion in the New Testament that we see serious people being prayed for and there is oil involved. So I don't think this mandates that every time the elders pray for you, you look for the oil. If the oil is not there, they need to stop. But there's no reason why we should not do it. As we pray for the sick, trusting in God, that it is in Him that we're healed and not through the oil. And verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This is quite a bold invitation for all of us to pray bold prayers, trusting God to bring healing. I think this is a helpful correction for some of us who are afraid that maybe when we pray, nothing happens. James calls us in faith to pray boldly and trust that God would heal. Yes, of course, we have to come in our bold prayers with a sense of humility and submission to God 
that he will do what is best if and when or how he heals. And he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think this counters the thought or the narrative that every sickness has sin attached to it. But in the same way, it opens the door for the reality that some of our sickness is a result of sin in our lives, past or present. But here, James doesn't send the sick on a wild goose chase looking for this mysterious sin. It is almost assumed that the sick would know of their sin and they would readily be able to confess and repent. And as prayers of intercession are prayed for them, and as they confess and repent, they receive healing. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In this part of verse 16, James develops this pattern of confession. And it's now not just confession to the elders, but confession to one another. This is the one anothering that we see in the New Testament. What it means to truly be a gospel community. This is important, guys. Who are you one anothering with? Who are you confessing sin to? Who are you repenting with? Praying with trusting together for your own progress and for their progress in this journey of faith. The reality is that there is no gospel growth without honesty, transparency, and vulnerability. You might be asking, but who am I supposed to do this with? Well, James here is clear. He is not talking about us confessing our sins to some priest or some special confession hearer or not even to an elder, but this is mutual. Not even, this is not even a mental activity that we get to do with Jesus alone and we say, don't worry about me, my stuff is with Jesus. No, this is one another. Jesus has made grace to be available to us as we confess and repent to one another. How do I know which person to do this with? I would say, start with someone in this community, maybe someone in your life group, someone you can trust, who's honest, who's mature enough to take your confession only one way, up to Jesus. Not, vertic not vertical down, not horizontal, only one way, up to Jesus. I think the reality is that 
as human beings, we are good at concealing our sin. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. The Bible tells us that they went into hiding away from God, but they also covered their shame from one another. Beloved of God, do not let sin fester in silence and in secrecy. That is where sin has its most power. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this in his book, Life Together. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But our repentance and, con and confession is not just an exercise where we say to each other, do better, try harder, come back with a better life next time we talk. But it's also not an exercise where we just affirm vulnerability and we say to each other, oh yeah, the struggle is real. Me too. Aish, it's just tough, man. The gospel way is that there is confession, there is repentance, there is putting our trust in Jesus, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we pray for one another, that there's real life renewal. I know there's a small price of embarrassment to pay as we open up our lives, but it pales in comparison to the profit of healing, to the profit of being free from the bondage of sin and the condemnation of the devil, to us walking in acceptance and in real fellowship with other believers. You might be asking, so what is it that, what sort of sin should I confess? You know, there is you know, the big stuff, there's the small stuff, there's the medium stuff, you know, what kind of stuff should I be confessing? I would say, start with the stuff that you don't want to share and receive grace where you need it the most. So James calls us to pray in every situation, to pray by ourselves to seek the prayers of the elders, to pray with one another as we confess our sins to each other and repent. As I conclude, James goes deeper and he tells us that every believer can have an effective prayer life. And he says this in verse 16b, the prayer of a righteous person is great power as it is working. So who's this righteous person. It is you and I, everyone, who has put their hope and trust in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that, and how that gives us a right standing with God. Now that because we have a right standing with God, 
Elijah, uh, James invites us to take a page out of Elijah's prayer book and for us to push deeper in our prayer. And he says this as he draws out of an instance in 1 Kings chapter 17 to 18, and he says this in James 5 verse 17 to 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So when James says to us that Elijah was a man with a nature like us, in a sense what he's saying to us is that the difference is not in the man Elijah. The difference is in his God. I think Elijah knew this. You can hear and see from Elijah's prayers that they were not Elijah-centered, they were God-centered. They were not self-seeking. They were seeking of God's glory. Just hear this. When Elijah prays in 1 Kings 18, verse 37 to 39, the Bible says Elijah said to the Lord, Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people may know that you God, our God. And the Bible says, Then the fire of the Lord fell down, and it consumed the sacrifice, consumed the stones, the soil, the wood, and licked the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell down on the ground, and they all cried out, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Secondly, James, in verse 17, tells us that Elijah prayed fervently. Instead of saying prayed fervently, the revised version says that in his prayer, he prayed, sort of suggesting that in all the energies of prayer, Elijah prayed. He did not just give up. He did not just wet his toes. He pressed in and prayed to God. Beloved God, let us give ourselves fervently to prayer. It is in prayer that we learn to rely on God by trusting that He will do what is best, even in our suffering. It is in prayer that our joy runs deep with its roots in the springs of God's goodness. It is in prayer that the fires of faith are stoked. It is in prayer that God is glorified when we get to see and savor like Elijah that the Lord is God. And people around us 
will see this and they will respond. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Amen. Can I ask us to stand? I'm going to call the band to come up to the front. Um, I was going to pray for us, but I think it'll be more beneficial if we all, wherever you are, don't worry about the, saving, the serving team that's going out. Where, wherever you are this morning, I want to invite you to have a moment on your own with God. Let's just take a few minutes. Maybe like Elizabeth Elliot prayed. Maybe for some of us, it's just offering up ourselves to God afresh, anew. Maybe for some this morning, it's, I've never done this. I hear you talk about doing life with God. I want to do that. I want to experience that. But I've never done this. Maybe it's for the very first time praying and just saying, God, I offer up my life to you. As Wayne has prayed earlier on, I want you to be my rock. Maybe for some it's, we have gone through suffering and loss and for too long, we have carried this unbearable pain. But today, we get to offer it up to God. Today, we get to say, what I suffer, I offer up to you today and forever. I don't know what you're going through, but wherever you are, let's just take a few minutes and do business with God. I think there is a response to Jason's prayer that he's not going to leave us to live here without for some healing, for some just a lifting of burdens. For some, a beautiful exchange as God gives himself to us.